0: Hi folks, this is Ken and uh, welcome back to Naturally Adventurous. This week's episode is part two of my chat with Allison Vlog. She is a writer, adventurer, migration counter extraordinaire, and just an all-around interesting, insightful human being. So it's great to have her back for a second week in a row. Hope you enjoy the episode. So we've certainly we've referenced migration counting and people are probably starting to get a picture of what it is from what you've said but I just want to lay it out explicitly especially maybe for non-birders listening like migration counting you basically what people do raptor counting where you're often on a ridgeline somewhere like in Appalachians or the Rockies sometimes on the east coast and then waterbird counting yeah you're always along some kind of shoreline and you basically stand there for what? I mean whitefish is maybe 8 hours a day or something. I think cape yeah. may's 10, 10 11 a day. But
1: yeah, pinos is first light to last light. <laughs> oof. Man. <laughs> yeah. So
0: you just yeah, you just literally stand there. You uh, bear witness. You count, you um you scan the horizon over and over often in a kind of a systematic pattern. You you sort of scan the sky. And, you know, your, your goal is to as accurately as possible, identify and count all the migrating water birds or raptors. So yeah, it's, it's such an unusual job. It's, um, there's so much we could get into about migration counting. Um, but the thing that amazes me about you is that you have now spent the better, you know, almost a decade doing this whitefish count and it is just absolutely unbelievably cold up there much of the time and it just the kind of the, the stamina and dedication it takes to do that is really remarkable. Uh, and you just keep signing up for additional seasons. Um, I'm, it's amazing. I mean, I, I did, I counted in Cape May. I counted a little bit Colorado. I counted, um, uh, raptors in Mexico. I, I experienced a lot of physical discomfort, but I don't think it's anything like being in whitefish. Um, you really like that, eh? You, you like to be,
1: yeah,
0: so cold, it's painful.
1: Yeah, you know, I think Whitefish Point might have some of the harshest field conditions of any migration site in North America. It Definitely. was pretty funny when I went to Point Pinos and people were saying it was cold and I'm just like, oh, it's so adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing like a third of the clothes that I wear at Whitefish Point. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's just, it can be brutally cold and windy. Like, for example, today... Um It wasn't that cold. I think the wind chill was probably around 18 or 20. And I, by now at this point in my counting career at Whitefish, I feel like every season I add something to my arsenal of warm clothing and the latest wonderful thing, um, it's been a pair of down pants and, you know, we all have down jackets, but down pants are just, they make me so happy. They're probably one of my top five favorite things I own, especially (laughs) when I'm up here.
0: I can imagine. Um,
1: but then there's like, when it finally gets warm, you have a few days, that are lovely. And then the mosquitoes hatch and they're kind of their own sort of miserable weather conditions. So it's no matter what time of year, there's just some sort of (laughs) challenges here. Yeah. Yeah. My boyfriend always tells me that I like to suffer. So maybe that's part of why I like Whitefish (laughs) Point so much, (laughs) but I just like, I really do love the power in Lake Superior. Um, a few falls ago, it was fall of 2020. Um, Trip, my boyfriend and I actually went out to Manitou Island, which is another Lake Superior site. It's about five miles off the tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula. Which um, there's Copper Harbor up there at the end. It's just it's like the horn that sticks out of the north side of the upper peninsula. And Manitou is not inhabited, and the water crossing out there is pretty treacherous. Um, It was a twenty-two foot fishing boat that took us out there, and the captain was great. Like he knew what he was doing. But while we were out there, we were only supposed to be out there for two weeks. And every day we're like, hmm, could the boat have collected us today? No. Yeah. (laughs) I think the waves are actually taller than the boat is long today. And it was just like gale after gale the whole time we were there. And it was even stalling migration. You expect the first two weeks in October on Lake Superior to be really, really great duck flights and nothing was happening because it was just too windy. And finally, the day before we were scheduled to get pulled off the island, the the wind died. And I woke up in the night, we were staying in this decommissioned lighthouse um, with a leaky roof and literally hundreds of mice. and. You could tell what direction the wind was coming from based on what parts of the lighthouse you would hear rattling. And I remember waking up in the night and not hearing anything rattling, being like, whoa, tomorrow is going to be like the biggest duck flight I think I've ever seen. Because I had all the time we had been out there, I had just been imagining, you know, these piles of ducks stacking up someplace northwest of there, and I wasn't sure if that was actually happening. And I think a lot of my theories about <laughs> waterbird migration. Um, have been proven wrong enough to make me have all of them be a little bit suspect. But that was what I was thinking about. And sure enough, um, as soon as it got light enough to see, the whole horizon was just crawling with ducks, mostly atheists, so your scop, your redhead. And I know that I totally undercounted that flight just because there's a huge field of view there. And even focusing on the things that were right in front of me every time I, like, panned out from that immediacy, just, like, the whole sky, the whole water, just all the way to all of the horizons was just literally crawling with birds. I've never seen anything quite like that before. And I was loving it. It was so challenging. Trip came out to bring me coffee, and he's not a birder, but he's a really good spotter. And he ended up, like, staying with me for most of the morning because he was calling flocks for me and i was like yeah please don't leave <laughs> i kind of need you out here Need help." but we we had this moment of realization where we we're like crap the this is the weather window that we need to be leaving the island there's a reason why all these birds are pushing so hard right now and sure enough that evening the wind started picking up again and we were scheduled to leave the next day and we didn't have communication really with the outside world. We had a VHF radio, so a marine radio. And we could sort of get a bar of service from the very top of the lighthouse. But that was it. And we got out to the dock and we waiting and listening for boats and nothing. And like we were getting further and further from our scheduled pickup time and really starting to worry. And so we turned on the radio to try to call the captain and we heard the weather forecast first, and it was like, on Wednesday, 20-foot waves. And Trip was like, what day is today? It was Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> and we just, like, looked at each other. Unfortunately, about 20 minutes later, we heard the boat coming, and we were so relieved. But I think that was one of my most visceral experiences with waterbird migration was Observing it not only on Lake Superior, which is a pretty violent body of water at times, but also having those same conditions that were impacting water bird migration happening, um, impacting my own ability to leave a place and Hmm. go to a place where there were more resources, because that's what migration is to me, is moving from diminishing resources to more abundant ones. And I was just... I was feeling that right there with the birds that day. Um, in fact, on our way back to the mainland, the weather shifted and he had to take, the captain had to take us to a landing that was on the other side of the peninsula from where he had set out on. And so we had to hitchhike back <laughs> to the initial wow. launch where he had left the the truck and the trailer. So it was a a pretty adventurous migration count. Um, when I think of the things, the cool things that I've done in the last few years, that's always going to be a standout.
0: So when I was doing migration counting, especially water bird counting, I always felt like these different birds going by had different characters, like especially different species it really had just a totally different vibe to them. Um, and I remember a friend of mine, he used to come up with like little theme songs for different species. And I, I remember one was like, I think surf scoter was this like, kind of like clown kazoo mu- music is, is quite, quite funny.
1: <laughs> that, I, I think they funny, would be, they absolutely would be.
0: Like definitely funny, different things happen to your mind when you just stand on a seawall or whatever for like 10 hours a day. Like, yeah, you're in a very different oh, mental absolutely. space. Absolutely. But I was just curious to ask you, like, you've spent so much time watching these birds and getting to know these birds. Like, do you have favorite characters among the birds? You, You mentioned loons that you really, you really enjoy loon flights.
1: Yeah, man. Like, I love the different flights for different reasons. I would say the loon flight is probably my all around favorite flight. Just because it's like it's so subtly beautiful um, at Whitefish Point, anyway, balloons don't fly in very large flocks. You'll have groups of maybe like a couple dozen at the most, but just the way they space is so aesthetically appealing. It's like they're strung across the sky, sort of like a constellation. Totally. The way they move across and. You know, they're kind of, like, gangly in flight. They've got great big feet that hang out behind them. The common loons especially are a little bit pot-bellied, which is a great way of distinguishing them between um, between that and red-throated loon, which is a lot more teat and delicate. But even though they're gangly and you see them, like, take off of water or whatever, which isn't particularly graceful, once they're in the air, like, man, they can move. And the way those flocks move as a unit is just gorgeous. Um, there's also a loon. On the bay that's like a more local loon and it actually helps me spot flocks of loons that are flying high and like going right overhead those are the birds that I'm more prone to miss are the ones that go directly overhead because I'm usually looking out and this loon is awesome because it gives this territorial call whenever loons go over um, oh, so sweet. it's kind of my assistant yeah and It's just as good at identifying loons as I am. Um, In fact, maybe better because sometimes, you know, you get a funny look at a cormorant or whatever, and for a moment, oh, is that a loon? And it turns out not to be. And I remember last spring, this loon called, and I looked up, and I saw a cormorant, and I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'm not the only one that does that. Like, the loon does it, too. And then I looked a little bit higher, and there was, like, a dozen red-throated loons going over, so I was like, ugh, (laughs) the loon is better than I am um so yeah i do love the loon flight i like the dabbler flights just because you're more prone to have multiple species in a flock and i really love that challenge of you know trying to pull a gadwall from a flock of wigeon or an american black duck from a flock of mallards or like my first literally my first duck flock of the season this year it was nice lighting and they came really close to the point but i was able to pull a hybrid american black duck mallard from a flock of mallards, and I was pretty stoked on that, and I still am pretty stoked on that. <laughs> and it's just fun to be able to to make those calls and to sense totally. yourself improving. I would not have been able to do that a few years ago. Um, and I love the long tailed flight. Um, I think. In sea watching, you do such a good job of describing how those flocks move, like rocking back and forth. And they just like, they have such a distinctive way of moving through the air, over the water. And sometimes it's just like, you have this ball, this mass of long tails crawling out of the horizon towards you and just like changing direction a bunch of times. And there'll be like hundreds of birds in the flock. And they're just, when they get closer, you can see their beautiful contrasting plumage and... They're a bird of the far north, and they just have some of that mystique that accompanies them as they pass by Lake Superior for that reason. I think they're my all-time favorite water bird at Whitefish Point. Um, And I know that I'm not the only counter (laughs) here to have had that opinion. The flights that we get in fall are just incredible. Like We always have a day that's at least 6,000 every fall. Wow. Yeah.
0: As you're you're talking about these birds, I think it's like my pulse is going up and like I'm getting a little bit of adrenaline and it's just kind of coming back to me, like what it's like to be a waterbird counter and to be sitting there and scanning the waves. And then you see a big flock coming towards you and man, it is just, it it is so exciting and just like invigorating, life affirming. It's like, yes, there's such power to waterbird migration. People maybe you don't realize this, but a lot of these species fly at like, what, 40 miles an hour or something? It's like pretty fast. Even more
1: than that in some cases. I know like long tails with transmitters have been clocked at like, I want to say 90 miles an hour. Wow. And I don't know if that was migratory flight or like an escape flight, but still that's a lot. And those birds with transmitters, I believe to get from Nunavut to the lower Great Lakes, I think it only took them two flights. Wow. And I bet they could have done it in one.
0: So these birds are just fast and powerful. And you just feel the weight of like winter coming and the the need to eat and stay alive. Like you described this like urgency of migration and the weight of all of that. And the weight of like a whole continent's birds like funneling down into these places. And in a weird way, it's got something in common with like watching a NASCAR race or something like... I think that's part of the appeal of watching racing is just like this feeling of speed and power, but this is something that's just completely natural. And, you know, it's been happening for, you know, whatever, tens of thousands of years, at least post ice ages. And and it's silent too, right? It's like, it's silent power. It's like, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to describe, but I'll, I would say just like, if you've never seen it, you know, go down to a seawall and fall or whatever spring and just like, check it out because it's something to behold
1: it will move you it really will um it's definitely moved me and i sometimes describe it as you know finding grounding under and amidst the flight lines it's just it's incredible
0: oh that's great Oh uh, my my head yeah no, I'm excited up. for
1: the spring flights that are <laughs> that are in store for me, especially since today I didn't see a single bird that I think was migrating. So
0: yeah, i'm I'm a little bit jealous of you getting to uh, go out tomorrow morning and actually look at migrating water birds. I'm in Pittsburgh right now.
1: <laughs> you know, if you saw the weather forecast, you might not be. It's going to be another <laughs> yeah. day of strong north winds. Fair enough. Fair but, enough. but there yeah. will come a day.
0: Yeah, there, there's definitely like agony and ecstasy you know, in the job. I mean, there are just times when you're just absolutely freezing. Your feet are freezing because you're not moving, right? You're just standing there. Um, I guess yes. sometimes I would like walk in little circles and stuff, but it's just really hard to stay warm and it's hard to stay I do focused. jumping
1: jacks sometimes.
0: So I would say that being a migration counter, there's also a weird social dynamic where like random people will approach you and talk to you and you're sort of this captive audience because you sort of, you can't move. Uh, I definitely had some weird conversations um, at Sea Watches. Um, Have you had some of those?
1: (laughs) I sure have. And I think especially being a female, you feel that element of being a captive audience even more. Whitefish Point is pretty isolated and... I've had some weird experiences with, like, people that I've met at the point. Not being birders, fortunately, but, like, somehow being able to figure out which bar I work at in Traverse City and, like, coming and sitting at the bar and being pretty stalkery. So that's not been fun.
0: Yeah, so one thing you've, you've mentioned in what you sent me prior to this podcast, you mentioned it, I think you've referenced it while we've chatted a bit, is that you did this, what you describe as an alt big year in 2021, and you were looking at vulnerable birds and key sites for them. And I think you said that you're working on writing a book about that year. Um, Is that accurate?
1: Yes, all of that is, you've got it. Yeah, in 2021, partly because of my experiences guiding in the Ops and just like spending so much time focused on the listing element of birding and finding that that wasn't, the right path for me. Um, I just really had this strong desire to celebrate birds for their essence more than their status. And I've always been interested in rare and threatened species of birds. So I, I made this list of bird populations in the lower 48 that were sensitive for one reason or another. And American Bird Conservancy has this book. It's called like the 500 most important bird areas in the US and I knew, of course, it wasn't possible to go to all of those, but I thought that I could at least pick a few from most of the regions and use that to guide my travels, which was awesome because so many of the sites in those books are way off the the standard birder path, and I got to go to places that I had never heard of and just was in full-on discovery mode. Um, but I was alone for most of the year, and I was living out of my Toyota Tacoma, and i didn't realize it when i set out and it's just it seems so obvious now i can't believe that i had not connected those dots until well into the year but focusing on these vulnerable bird populations and the places that are so important to them and examining like the risk factors around those it just became really really powerful through the lens of my own vulnerability of being a woman alone on the road and You know living for most of a year in what felt like flight or fight mode
0: so have you written the book yet or is it uh, an ongoing process or where are you at in that
1: it is totally an ongoing process (laughs) um writing as i'm sure you know is its own type of vulnerability there's a lot of ego involved in that and for me i struggle a lot with perfectionism so writing has never been a very quick process like When things happen, they're usually, like, I'm very satisfied with them, but they don't happen quickly. Um, I spent three months this winter working on a book proposal and a chapter outline and have a very good chunk of manuscript that is ready for an editor that's not me. And my goal with that is to get an agent, which I will probably be uh, looking for later this spring and hoping for... good publishing contract because i don't want to self-publish i would love for more of my life to become oriented towards writing this is going to be my chance to do that
0: that's that's really exciting um i i've really been amazed and impressed by your writing that i've just seen on on social media and i basically can't wait for that book to come out um so just I really, really hope you, you do it, you, you finish it and, uh, it's, it's published and I can't wait to read it. Like I'll be, I'll be the first to get a copy. So.
1: <laughs> that is so good to hear. Like, I, I'm sure again, like you being an author know that it's when you have a work in progress, that it's a pretty big work in progress. Hearing that people are excited to, to see it is so motivating. Um, but yeah, those three months of just focusing on nothing but writing were really good for me and allowed me to get into like some healthy writing routines. Even here I've been getting up. It's, I don't know, for some reason the dark hours early in the morning are my best brain hours. And I've been maintaining those getting up early and writing and hoping to continue that throughout the process. Um, But yeah, it's been kind of crazy to go back and work through those stories and just You know, it's been, what, two years now, and it was a pretty crazy year. I'm glad for my dad's sake that I'm not alone on the road anymore because I can't imagine how stressed he must have been.
0: Yeah, well, I imagine we could do, we could record a whole podcast about the adventures he had on the road there a whole year on your own in the middle of nowhere. Like, I just, I can't even imagine that, that, but hey, I'll read the book and, uh, yeah. Let's, yeah, maybe, maybe we could chat about that. Like if you get close to publishing it, maybe we could just chat about that. Um, if you'd be, able that to would
1: that. actually be really cool. I would, I would love to do that.
0: But I guess for now um, we have to close things up pretty quick, but um, I'm just curious to ask you a little bit more about writing. Um, mm-hmm. I've just been so impressed by your writing abilities. Um, what have you done to develop those? I mean, you've obviously practiced a lot, even, I actually think social media is a pretty good kind of writing practice. It's very condensed, but what else have you done to kind of hone your craft?
1: Ooh, that's, that's such a good question. I think that stories and writing have always been a part of me. Even when I was a little kid, like I developed this newsletter for my friends. I was probably eight and I had the really original name of Nature Newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that's been cool. something that's been a part of me for a very long time, both the the birds and the stories that they give me and i love that i actually i have only a bachelor's degree and that is in environmental writing and media studies and those sorts of things definitely helped me develop my voice and was a good step in the process i think the thing though that has made the most difference with my writing and my writing process since graduating has been actually reading my work out loud to myself. Like even my social media posts, I usually do read out loud. Um, The way that the rhythm that things have, like the auditory rhythm is really important to me. And um, I think that my prose is fairly poetic. Um, I don't want to (laughs) sound arrogant because I'm very not arrogant about my writing. Um, but I, I do like the way that things sound and it's like a very fun game for me. Like, how can I make this sound the most appealing way possible? Not just like the imagery that's coming through, but also the sound of the words. And when people read my work, they generally comment on, you know, the rhythm that it has and yeah, a lot of work goes into that. Um, but reading my work out loud is probably the most important part of my writing process.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Huh? No, definitely poetic, quite poetic. And, and I, I maybe even the condensed nature of writing on social media lends itself to a certain poetry because you just, there's this less like brevity to things. Mm -hmm. Um, have Mm -hmm. you actually written poetry or like what you've called poetry or have you just kind of done poetic prose?
1: Really just poetic prose, and I would love to take some sort of poetry class because I feel like I'm at a point now where I'm like, I've found that a lot of my reading has shifted to poetry just because, unfortunately, I've been so busy lately that it's hard for me to get into a book. But if I read a poem every morning, like, that's a much more manageable way to keep up my reading practice. And not only am I doing that, but I'm really enjoying it, and it's making me want to develop my own poetry aptitude, because I have no idea about things like line breaks or whatever. I was taking a writing class earlier this year, actually. And somebody mentioned in that class that you can have like a whole graduate seminar on the line breaks in poetry. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I need to I need to have some formal training in this sort of thing. But I would love to do that.
0: I'm curious, do, who are a few of your favorite writers or, or some of your favorite books um maybe in general and specifically about nature
1: I guess like a lot of people especially on this continent and probably my generation of birding I really like Kingbird Highway um is just like a very unique type of a big year where he's hitchhiking around the United States and the book is Not just about birds and not just about lists, but also about people he met and relationships and things that were happening. And I think it's like a very interesting book for that reason. And just like pretty punk rock, too. Oh, yeah. One of the most punk rock birding books there is. Um, You can't read it and not be motivated to go do something that's a little bit out there. And I love it for that reason. And I think any author would proud of have their book having that sort of effect
0: um I, I read that when i was like 15 and i yep. think my mom like saw me reading this book and checked it out and she was terrified that i was just going to disappear one day and uh just hitchhiking bird and, and there was definitely yep. a non-zero probability of that happening
1: <laughs> yeah i don't think i let my mom see that i was reading it for similar <laughs> reasons um but yeah, I like that, and I also really love The Feather Quest by Pete Dunne. I think that might be actually where my idea of, like, spending a year traveling but not focusing on getting a big list might have stemmed from reading that book, which I did pretty young, because, again, I just love the place descriptions and the interaction descriptions. Like, I remember his chapter on Attu being about, like, water moving, and it's just, like, very poetic and lyrical as far as birding writing goes while also like containing a lot of the excitement that happens when you're looking for birds, searching for birds, seeing birds. Um, And he got to go to some really cool places that were inspirational and like me wanting to go to them as well. Still haven't gotten to Churchill or Atu for that matter, but definitely on my list. Um, But yeah, like, man, expanding from just books I really like Charles Bowden are you familiar with him at all no okay so he was friends with Ed Abbey and what are your feelings on Ed Abbey
0: some books I really love others I never quite got but definitely yep. an admirer uh, he's got, he's got yeah. some weird stuff he, there's definitely some kind of strange I don't know misogyny to Edward Abbey but he's a good writer
1: Yep. Yep. Like, I, I really like Desert Solitaire and yep. can't say that That's he wasn't a good writer. Yep. But <laughs> but some of his stuff, it's like, oh. Um, so Bowden was friends with Ed Abbey. And I don't know, his writing is a little bit more humble. Uh, it's about the same region, more or less. Uh, Bowden goes more into Mexico. But it's one of my all-time favorite books. It's like a really dark kind of depressing read but it's called blood orchid and unnatural history of the americas and he is yeah it's as the title says he's traveling around um sort of just like revealing parts of colonialization both in north america and south america and the ugly parts of that and how they affect us now and just like the power dynamics and politics but he's writing beautifully about the elements of natural history that are present in those regions and um, he uses a metaphor of a parasitic wasp um throughout the book just like very wonderfully um so it's like an appealing book to read as somebody who likes writing and also just like i think it's a book that more people need to read you can't read it and not feel a little bit of disgust about how the United States is run. And I think that we need to, to keep that disgust close. <laughs> um, it's not always fun, but, but we need to pay attention to it. And he also has like some really beautiful collections of nonfiction. Um, blue desert is a book, that's all pieces about, um, the sort the Sonoran desert. And it ranges from him hiking, um, an area where people oftentimes die when they're, you know, going from Mexico to the United States and trying not to get caught. But he hiked that as well just to get, like, a firsthand narrative experience on it. He wrote about putting radio collars on desert pronghorn and just, he brings a lot of his own sentiments into it. Like, I remember him um, sympathizing with the pronghorn, this really wild animal as it's, like, hunted down and tranquilized and fitted with a radio collar and so yeah he's he's a good writer i love him um been reading a lot of ada limon and joe harjo lately who are both poets um strong voiced women that also include a lot of the natural world in their work but yeah
0: great well thanks thanks for sharing those i'll definitely check out those authors and uh yeah you should yeah charles Bowden, ada limon and what was the third one you mentioned joy harjo joy harjo okay just writing that down yeah yeah great have you read i'm sure you've read the sand county almanac uh, aldo leopold
1: yes though not recently
0: some of his stuff reminds me of some of what um, i've read of yours just online in that I guess he was a scientist and he was often trying to like quantify nature but then he was also alive to just the like romance and, and so he kind of like struck a balance between those things and uh yeah, yeah. I really I really like that book
1: yeah I think it's so important to even when you're pursuing scientific understanding and knowledge to keep that element of wonder there and going back to migration counting for a little bit. Like, that's one of the things that I love about it. You can't be out there watching things and, and not have wonder, both, like, asking more questions and just standing there and marveling at the amazing things that are happening around you.
0: Totally. It, you're never going to do that job just to pay the bills, right? Like, there's always be so <laughs> Well, you many... couldn't for one thing, but no. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yep.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because the whole, like... Scarcity to abundance theme in migration. I feel that a lot when I'm moving between my count seasons and my bar seasons. Like at the end of the count season, I'm in such a good headspace. Like my spirits are high. Like my heart feels full. And, but my bank account is suffering a little bit. So (laughs) I'll go down to Traverse City and work six, sometimes seven days a week, as many double shifts as I can. And, be ready for another season of counting without having to have like the stress of finances. And when the end of that bar season comes around, it's another migration for me from scarcity to abundance. Cause like, okay, I'm like, I've got money now, but Hmm. my heart's not in a very good place. It's not the best version of me that comes out after working several months in the service industry. So returning to that space of migration and paying attention and having a relationship with with place and it's non-human elements, like that's, that's the other side of that migration.
0: Well, where can people find you online? Um, you're, you have a blog, right? And a website?
1: I do, yeah. Um, It's right now very much in need of updating. Everything kind of gets (laughs) left behind when I start counting up here. Um, But the website is passagemigrant.com. And I can also be found on social media, either searching my name, Allison Vlog, or my Twitter and my Instagram handle are the same. It's Boreal Vagabond. So yeah. Uh, if anybody's interested in finding my writing through any of those mediums, I'd love for you to, to check it out and chat that way.
0: Yeah. Great. We'll, we'll put links in the show description and I definitely highly recommend that people follow you and yeah, we'll, we'll wait for updates on your book. Really excited for that. Can't wait for that yeah, to come me out. Too. And, uh, Oh yeah. We always, uh, close out our episodes with a natural sound. I was thinking, uh, calling long-tailed ducks might be appropriate for.
1: Yep. That's exactly what I was thinking.
0: <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So we'll, we'll play Perfect. out with some long-tailed ducks, which I think you said is your favorite, um, migrating water bird, at least at, at, up at Whitefish. And yes. Pretty, pretty comical, unique vocalization. Pretty, pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. So... Sometimes I'll sit out there at night because they'll fly at night in the spring, and it'll be too dark to see them, but you can still hear them going overhead, and you know what it is, because it is such a distinctive sound.
0: Oh, that is so cool. I've never heard them at night. I, I don't know if they just don't fly at night along the East Coast or what, but man. Oh, huh, that's so interesting. Another reason to they return do here. to Whitefish Yeah, day. <laughs> May night
1: flights. You definitely should do it.
0: So cool. Well, thanks so much for chatting, Allison. Good luck with everything. Good luck with the count. I hope uh, tomorrow's not too miserable. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> it will be. Safe travels.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for for having me on here, Ken. I can't wait to to see how this turns out. <coughs>